I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. When she was 11 years old, Bryn Turnbull accidentally put her foot through a single pane window while leaping through a well-worn copy of Sandman, Volume 2. The incident, which resulted in a trip to the hospital, five stitches, and a unique application of superglue, taught her two things. One, that reading is not and should not be attempted as a full contact sport. And two, that writers can create worlds within a book so absorbing, so completely and utterly all-encompassing that they can drive readers to such distraction as to forget the outside world entirely. Brynn is an internationally best-selling author of historical fiction. Equipped with a Master of Letters in Creative Writing from the University of St. Andrews, a Master of Professional Communication from Toronto Metropolitan University, and a Bachelor's Degree in English Literature from McGill University, Brynn focuses on finding stories of women lost within the cracks of the historical record. Her debut novel, The Woman Before Wallace, was named one of the top 10 best-selling works of Canadian fiction for 2020 and became an international bestseller. Her second, The Last Grand Duchess, spent eight weeks on the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestseller list. Her third novel, The Paris Deception, comes out at the end of May. Welcome, Bryn. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. So Bryn, why historical fiction? Gosh, you know what? Historical fiction always, always, always has been my jam. Like from the get-go as a kid, I remember reading, there's this book, it's by a Canadian author. It's called The Sky is Falling by Kit Pearson. And I probably read that when I was like 10. And it was about British children who were brought over to Canada during the Second World War and like the experience of this brother and sister. And honestly, from then, Historical fiction has just always been my obsession, all different time periods, all different places. And so when I started writing, it felt like a very natural fit. It felt like all of the reading I had been doing in my life from the start was leading up to writing my own historical fiction books and adding to that historical fiction shelf. When I first started writing, I'll admit I wasn't that smart about historical fiction in that I had Mm -hmm. conversations with people that were telling me, well, I don't understand how they can take this historical thing and fictionalize it. I didn't have an answer for him. Trying to remember who it was said, well, you need to tell them it is historical fiction. Fiction. When you're on that side of the book, is it hard to navigate how far to push that fictional side? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a question that every single historical fiction author grapples with. Like, I think it's part of our genre. And I've read historical fiction novels that play fast and loose with established history. And I've read ones that stick very close to the historical record. And I am, I fall closer to the historical record. I try my hardest to navigate and thread my stories within established fact as far as I can. My first two books featured real historical heroines. And so those books are as close as I could possibly make them to the historical record while still giving myself flexibility to explore character development within the Mm -hmm. bounds of that historical record. So like, you know, wherever I put the character, we knew that she was there and we knew that X, Y, and Z were at that party, but we don't always know the motivation. And so that's kind of a fun place to play in terms of character development, figuring out kind of what's going on in that gray area between the black and white. With this novel that's coming out in May, uh, The Paris Deception, 
I have taken a historical setting and I've inserted fictional characters and a fictional storyline into that historical setting. So it is different and it is certainly more on the fictional side of the record, but there are historical truths at the heart of it. It deals with art that was stolen by the Nazis from Jewish families all across Europe. That absolutely happened. It takes place in this museum where all of this art was taken and stored called the Jeux du Palme, which is located within the grounds of the Jardin de Tuileries in Paris. That is a real museum. And a lot of this art was stolen by the Nazis from Angorian in, in particular, who basically just would wholesale take this and put it up on his walls, not pay a cent for it, even though they were couching it all in terms of safeguarding the mm -hmm. art for the ownerless paintings. These paintings were not ownerless at all. They were owned by these Jewish families who, for very obvious reasons, had to flee or were murdered. So all of that is true. But I'm taking a specific sort of subsection of these paintings called the degenerates. That was a term coined by the Nazis, actually, for art that was deemed ideologically impure, according to their racist standards. It deals with this particular collection in the museum. And that's kind of where I start getting a little into the fictional world, because it's what my characters do with that art. Coming back to your question about kind of the line between history and fiction, I think that we have to respect the historical record as far as possible. And I always will include an author's note where I explain where I deviate, because one of the reasons people love historical fiction is it teaches them about different historical time periods and different historical people and different historical truths. And so when I write historical fiction, I always want to kind of tell you I'm writing a story I hope that you love the story and you engage with the story as a story. And here are all of the places. Here's all my work. I'm showing you all my work so that you know what's fact and what's fiction. Seems like you almost always see an author's note. Like you said, showing you their work on your document that you're writing. Do you just keep an author's note going the whole time? Or is that something you have to sort out at the end? I sort it out at the end, but I do keep kind of a running tally in my manuscript where I like I'll have little footnotes in the working mm -hmm. manuscript where I'll say, I want to make sure that I talk about this and I want to make sure that I reference that and don't forget this so that I can collate all of those footnotes and go, okay, there's the skeleton for my author's note and then kind of push it out from there. I am a consummate student. Like I love writing essays, <laughs> which is why I became <laughs> an author. That's my excuse to write like a little academic essay at the end of the book. I really enjoy the subject matter. My friend Lisa Barr wrote Women on Fire. Mm -hmm. Yes. When that came out, it seems like that was just starting to catch the news. Like there, there was more and more written about it. I know last week there mm -hmm. was something in the New York Times about art that's being returned, not just art that was stolen during the war, but also art that's been in like high profile museums was stolen from different countries. It's sad that we won't get to continue to go to those museums and see those things. But at the same time, if they were stolen, they need to go back home where they belong. It's interesting yeah. to see how this is playing out both in fiction and in real life. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the sad fact of the matter is a lot of the art that was stolen from these Jewish families by the Nazis, it never returned. Some of it was destroyed. A lot of it went into private collections, which difficult to find them. And some did mm -hmm. go into, they did go into public institutions, into museums. And so we're seeing all of these cases play out now dealing with these issues of provenance because museums in particular, whether they acquired those pieces knowingly or unknowingly as the result of plunder at some point in that work of art's history, that doesn't erase the fact that the plunder happened. And that doesn't erase the fact mm -hmm. that whoever owned that work of art, whichever family owned that work of art, 
they deserve to get it back. They deserve to have that piece of their cultural heritage restored to them. I think we're going to keep seeing this again and again and again. There are all sorts of cases playing out. And, you know, of course, with museums, there is also the whole bigger issue of just the outright theft that empires, the British Empire in particular, uh, there's a whole podcast about it, Stuff the British Stole, yeah. about all of these cultural artifacts, religious artifacts that have been taken by countries without the consent of anybody there. And yeah, they deserve mm. to go back to their rightful place of origin. You've already told us a little bit about the Paris deception, but tell us, yeah. kind of give us the log line. What's the story about? So the Paris deception is about art theft and forgery in Nazi-occupied France. And the story takes place, as I mentioned, in this museum called the Jeux du Palme, which is where the Nazis took all of this art, spearheaded by a art commission called the ERR, all of the art that they stole from these Jewish families and from enemies of the Reich. Within this museum, it was used as a sort of warehouse for high-ranking Nazis to come and take whichever piece of art they wanted. Hitler considered himself an artist. He was a failed artist. And he wanted to create the greatest art collection of all time in his hometown of Linz. And so a lot of this art ended up going and it was earmarked for this museum. My story concerns two main characters. One is a young art conservator who works within the museum. Her name is Sophie Dix. And Sophie realizes that within this bigger art collection is a group of paintings known as degenerates. And degenerate art was considered, you know, it was anything that wasn't a direct representation of the world. So we're talking cubism, postmodernism, impressionism, like any art that was not literally the world portrayed on canvas. Any art that challenged new perspectives, offered new perspectives, this was considered degenerate. And of course, art by Jewish artists, gay artists, all of this kind of fell under this broad umbrella of degenerate. Sophie takes it upon herself to save the degenerate collection by replacing them with clever forgeries with the help of her estranged sister-in-law, Fabienne, who is a, a bohemian artist who has fallen on hard times in the war. So the two of them join together, despite a very momentous occasion that has ripped them apart in the past, to replace these paintings with clever forgeries. But... In the course of doing this, the Degenerate Collection comes under very close scrutiny by Hermann Goring's personal art curator. He takes a very close interest in the Degenerate Collection, and the clock starts ticking on whether Sophie and Fabienne can replace these paintings and save these paintings without him taking notice of them, too. Great way to amp up the tension. Just give us that ticking clock. <laughs> How did you structure it? It's a dual POV. It's third person for both sections. Sophie, the, the curator within the museum, and Fabienne, the sister-in-law, who is this bohemian artist. So it is a chronological plot, but it is told from these two different perspectives as we move forward in time. What did that process look like? Like, do you stay in one head or just go back and forth? How does that work? It's tricky. You know, I know that there are kind of authors have all these different ways of dealing with a dual POV story. And for me, I had to kind of keep it chronological in my head. I flipped back and forth between the narrative voices, chapter by chapter, which raises its own challenges, right? Logistically, I find that makes more sense because I know exactly what happened Previously, I'm not needing to go back and infill things by writing two bigger separate narratives and then threading them together. But settling on the narrative voice can take a little bit of time, like clunking back into, you know, Sophie's voice or Fabienne's voice. I found that to be a bit of a challenge because they are very distinct narrative voices. Sophie is blunt. Sophie's matter of fact. 
Fabian is a bohemian artist who, like me, talks with her hands and, you know, a little more loose in her styles and in her ways of thinking. One of the ways, though, that I kind of I was able, you know, for myself to get into uh, Fabian's voice in particular was a friend of mine, another another author um, recommended that I find her signature scent. And I had done that for my first two books because my main characters, I knew historically what perfume they wore because they both talk about the perfume that they wore in their memoirs. So I had done that for my first two books. I'd gone out and I'd gotten their perfume and I kind of would have that and wear it when I was writing to kind of get myself into their headspace. So with Fabienne, I thought, okay, well, here's another chance to do that. I went to Sephora and I literally went through probably 75 perfume samples and I'm spraying them. And this very lovely and patient woman is helping me. And I'm going, that's not it. 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 And probably on the 76th sample, I realized the reason that it wasn't working is because Fabienne, when we meet her at the start of the book, she is a very recent widow. She's been very recently bereaved. And so I realized the problem I was having was that as a new widow, she wouldn't be wearing her own perfume. She would be wearing her husband's cologne as a reminder of him. And that for me was the entry point into her character. Really, that just kind of opened her up completely to me. So I got her cologne. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I wore that whenever I was writing and it would get me into her headspace. I love the idea about the perfume because that would give you more of a sensual experience of being in their head, in their body. Do you ever challenge to switch over though? Like, okay, you've done this, but you've got this other scent. Now what? I would write like one day in one voice, one day in another. So I was able to kind of keep them separate just through that, through showering. <laughs> I don't know if people understand this, but writers don't always get a shower. When you're really in the trenches, we like Our to take showers life, daily, but it yes. does not always happen. Our life is not as Nora Ephron would have you believe. <laughs> it's more like 65 to 70% cave troll. The remaining time is like you get to come out blinking and squinting into the sunlight and go like clutching your book in your little claws and go, here See you go. See what world. I made? See what I made. I am a cave troll. When you're writing, like today you're going to be in this person's head, you sit down to write. How do you pace out your day? I don't do word counts. I have never in my life been good with numbers and word counts are a number to me. And so (laughs) I prefer to write organically. I would rather get 200 really, really good words down on the page than 2,000 so-so words. That for me is more important. It's the quality of the words. I don't love having to go back and do like gigantic revisions. I like to have my chapters as polished as possible on the first go. So I will write and I will belabor the chapter or the scene, the dialogue, whichever, so that when I put it aside, I don't feel the need to come back to it until everything is done to the point where I'm comfortable with like my editor seeing it or my agent seeing it. So that for me is very important. It's just kind of like dig in, do really quality work. And if it is only 200 words, that's okay because tomorrow it'll be more, but I'm going to be proud of those 200 words. That's number one. Number two is I write longhand. I have a gigantic collection of fountain pens and I will write everything longhand first, especially dialogue. I find dialogue and, you know, character development works really well longhand for me. So I'll write it all out longhand, get kind of like the sketch of everything pulled together, get the truth of everything kind of corralled on a page. And then I'll transfer it over to my computer. And that's where I'll get into like the logic of the scene. That's where I'll get into like, who's doing what, where are they looking? What are they wearing? All of that stuff can happen typing, but 
the emotions of the scene all come longhand first. I have these notes everywhere that look like this. And when I'm like stuck, I will pull some of the notes out and I I keep a spreadsheet for imagery and Mm -hmm. what their mouth looks like or a movement. I have all these notes. What was I saying here? I can't even say it was in the middle of the night. That was during the day. My husband's a doctor and his handwriting is perfect. Mine, back <laughs> right, he looks at me and he goes, really? What is this? Like, mm, a doctor with each other handwriting, my God. He does, yeah, he's very OCD. <laughs> so. Do you outline? I do outline. And this book in particular, like the first thing I will do in the research process is I will write a very detailed historical record of everything that's going on in this place at this time, politically, socially, economically. I'll get kind of all of that background information first. So that I can use that to create the detailed outline in Excel of this is what's going to happen in this scene. These are the characters involved. This is the conversation that needs to happen. This needs to be the outcome. So that outline, each chapter or each, yeah, they're usually chapters. Each one will be like one to four paragraphs of this is what's going to happen Mm -hmm. in this chapter. And then I use that. Then I take that offline and then I'll go longhand chapter by chapter and pull it all together. I was going to ask you which comes first, the research, the character, the plot. I'm guessing it's the the research for sure. Yeah, it's the research because, I mean, the research informs character development. It really does, because if you are going into a particular time and place, your character is not necessarily going to have the same modern sensibilities that we do or the same justifications for their actions. All of that is informed by the time and place. You know, what did average run-of-the-mill woman in 1864, what were her career options? What was her family? If she was married, what would that marriage have looked like? All of that comes out of her social and historical context. So that social and historical context for me is the most important thing so that I can write this character. I mean, and I'm not saying that my characters are like ridiculously antiquated to modernize. They aren't. They have modern sensibilities, but those modern sensibilities need to be justified within a historical context to make them make right. sense. It's been wow. a whirlwind. Third book in three years. I hear the third one's the hardest. This one was tough. This one was a toughie. And I think part of it was because I had training wheels, so to speak, on the first two books because they were both historical heroines. So like Mm -hmm. I had their autobiographies, I had history books all about them. I was able to use all of those resources to inform their character development. In this book, the main characters are purely fictional. And so I had to come up with everything. And if they're going to act this way, why are they acting this way? What's their backstory? What's their family history? What food do they like? What don't they like? All of that kind of pre-work, all of that character development has to happen before you put anything down on the page. That definitely made this the hardest book I've ever had to write, but I loved the process. I really, really loved the process. I'm doing it again for my second book. So clearly I liked it. (laughs) So how long does it take you before you start writing? Uh, About a year, I'd say. I'd say I do like a solid year of research. And that's usually while I'm writing the previous book. So I'll just focus entirely on the research, get that research all pulled together, build the outline, and that'll be about a year. And then I'll start writing. And I mean, the research never ends, right? Because I'll be writing a scene and I'll have to kind of like, first of all, refresh my memory on whatever is happening historically at that moment. But then also there are always little kind of tiny little details that if you don't get them right, somebody is going to notice. 
For example, in 1943 in Paris, were phones hardwired into the walls? Could you unplug a phone? Could you move it? Right. Like these are the things that you wouldn't necessarily like think about immediately. Like how exactly do you receive a telegram? All of this stuff needs to be established and needs to make sense in order for a scene to work. You don't want to write a whole scene about somebody unplugging a phone from the wall, moving into another room to have a private conversation Mm -hmm. and then realizing, wait a minute, Phones that could unplug from the wall didn't come into existence until the 1960s. That whole scene, that whole day's work is gone. gone. (laughs) I have to completely rewrite it because the technology didn't exist, right? Oh, wow. You are writing one book while you're researching another. How do you keep it straight in your head? I choose time periods that are distinct enough that there's not really going to be overlap. So like my first book was 1930s England. My second book was the Russian Revolution. This book, 1940s Paris. My next book is 1960s Berlin. So they're distinct enough time periods that they're not kind of like mixing in my brain too, too much. Mm -hmm. And I also find that it keeps me motivated. Being able to kind of work on the one project while getting excited about your next one. It it keeps me moving, which I really, really like. Mm -hmm. And it keeps me interested and intellectually curious about what's going to happen next. Besides research, are you reading anything right now? Oh, yes. I am very much one of those people who like reads while I write. I can't go like a full year without reading fiction. It's never Mm going to happen. Right now, I am reading Carly Fortune's most recent book. It's a Mm -hmm. rom-com called Meet Me by the Lake. I love, love, loved her first book. And so that is at the top of my TBR pile. The other one that I'm really, really looking forward to, it comes out tomorrow, May 16th, is R.F. Klein's newest book, Yellow Face. I cannot wait. My publicist was telling me about it. It sounds like it's going to be an absolute barn burner of a book. I'm going to be standing in line like tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, ready to pick up that book and devour it. (laughs) We are going to do a little lightning round. Love a lightning round. What's your hidden talent? I have got a really, really ludicrously accurate memory for song lyrics. Favorite movie? Oh, I really like Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. (laughs) No, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I lied. Okay, cat or Lord dog? Is too. Dog. I've got a little dog named Yee. Um, your favorite historical period? Favorite historical period, early 20th century. Although because of Bridgerton, I am now like very intrigued in the Regency period and the Georgian period. So who would play you in a movie? Oh, God. I really would love to say Florence Pugh because she's an incredible actor. The last question, which is not in the lightning round. Do you have any advice for new writers? I do. First of all, my writing process is not going to be the same as your writing process. Figure out what works for you. Don't feel the need to like, you know, follow somebody else's writing habits to the letter. Like figure out what works for you. Take from different sources. Listen to a whole bunch of podcasts like this. Figure out what works for you and just integrate it into your own full thing. So that's number one. Number two is really like your characters, create characters that you like, because you are going to spend a lot of time with them. And I'm not just talking about the times where you sit down and you are writing their book. They stay in your head and they're in your head like 24 seven while you're writing. They will have opinions on your life. They will say stuff at inopportune moments, which means that you have to find a pen immediately and write down what it is they're telling you. So like your characters, make sure that you enjoy spending time with them because you spend quite a bit of time with them throughout the course of writing a book. Three, find your writing community. Your writing community is the most important group of people. And they honestly are the difference between getting a project done and letting it sit on a shelf because they will motivate you 
when you are not motivated, they will inspire you with their work. If they're other writers, they will inspire you. They'll introduce you to new books, new resources that you may never have thought about yourself. And they will be your biggest cheerleaders and you will be their biggest cheerleaders. And it is a very, very special connection. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been such a fun conversation. So thank you to all of listeners. I hope that you enjoy the Paris Deception. To learn more, visit BrynTurnbull.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.